to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My name is Andreas Warner. I'm a record producer, songwriter and owner of Crazy Chester Records. The theme song you just heard is performed by Wet Willis, Jimmy Hall and Funky Chester. The Crazy Chester Radio Hour is a weekly music talk podcast featuring an eclectic group of guests with musical hearts, minds and souls. And many of the episodes will dive deep into the rich history of music mecca muscle shoals. My guest today is my good friend and collaborator Charlie Taylor. Charlie is a songwriter who has written songs with many of the great southern songwriters, including Dan Pant, Spooner Oldham and Buzz Kaysen. He's also released three albums as an artist, and today we'll talk about Charlie's most interesting life in and around music. Welcome to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour, my good friend, Charlie Taylor. Charlie, I'm so glad to have you on my podcast. Um, thank so you for taking So good to be here. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad we're able to do this. Thank ever, you. Ever, ever since I, you know, kind of uh, conceived the idea of this podcast, I knew I needed to have Charlie on it for, for a lot of reasons. First of all, you've been in and out of music for a long time and you've seen so many different scenes and eras and different aspects of the music industry and you're also an artist and have done albums in your own right and uh, I hope we can touch on all that a little bit sure but maybe we can kind of go back to the beginning and just kind of um, you know kind of ask you what how you got exposed to music what was like your earliest musical memories um after world war ii um my dad bought a helicrafter shortwave radio and uh as a little boy even before i started school five six years old at night and it also had a uh headset with it uh earphones today but um i used to get on that and just start spinning the dial at night and landing on different radio stations. And uh, I would listen to WLS in Chicago uh, on a clear night, uh, WHBQ in Memphis. And I grew up in a town, uh, Mayfield, Kentucky, although I was born in Abilene, Texas. But uh, And I began to get uh, a sense of rhythm and blues. My mother was a big band advocate and she was a great piano player too so i got a dose of glenn miller and all the big band Artie shaw all the big bands benny goodman the 40s so between that and the blues i was picking up and the stone country music that was played on the radio in western kentucky 
uh, I got a real dose of uh, a, a wide bandwidth of music growing up. And my, uh, I also, my dad liked uh, Wagner and Beethoven, and so I got a little bit of that too. But I really gravitated toward uh, country music and the blues and R&B in its, really R&B in its kind of infancy. Uh, so that's, those are my earliest memories of records was big band after the war. And, and, uh, that was, that was kind of the beginning. And I knew I loved music. I mean, I used to let, we had a baby grand piano and I used to lay under it while my mother was playing it and just kind of get, get lost and all close my eyes and just get lost and all that. So, and then try to pick out in, in high school, I would try to pick out, you know, three or four chords and uh in in music but you know at 14 years old we moved from mayfield to westport connecticut and then i got a huge dollop of doo-wop and of course elvis presley and jerry lee lewis and sun records sam phillips who i came to know later uh huge influence on me and uh you know i played in a band in college and um so it was just this slow evolution, you know, over maybe 20 years of uh, getting into it. And I guess the most, somebody who really launched me forward was um, a guy in San Angelo, Texas that I met, uh, High Duncan, High Pockets Duncan, who was Buddy Holly's manager. And he managed a radio station there, and I took him a tape of a song that I recorded in San Angelo called Oliver Street and he he liked it and he said you know if you want to be uh, if you want to get anywhere in the music business as a songwriter you need to go to New York and I'd lived there very briefly in uh, early 1966 and or LA so I started thinking about Los Angeles because I didn't want to move back let to me New York. interrupt you yeah. here real quick and we'll get to all of that okay absolutely but in your teens in Westport, you also got very much interested in cars. I and did. You were a member of, uh, the, of downshifters. the Downshifters. It yeah. was a hot rod club, which right. uh, my actor my, Michael Douglas right. was a member of yeah. as well. And can you tell me a little bit about that scene and then maybe also a little bit how music was part of that scene as well? Sure. Um we were 14, 15 years old, and before I got my driver's license, I bought a Model A, uh, and I yanked the four-cylinder engine out of that and found a, a V8 flathead Ford and put that in there, and uh, it was a Mercury, I think. Never got it running, but I got, you know, I messed up our parents' garage. I had grease all over the place, but I was just, I was enthralled by the sound of, and fury of hot rods and uh eventually bought a 38 ford and got that running and and uh music music played a huge uh i think part of all of our lives i know when we get together at reunions we talk about the evolution of music and and uh how much lyrics meant back then and how much how much of a change there is in popular music i mean you had uh, on the top 40, you had Dean Martin, the Everly Brothers, Elvis Presley, uh, Percy Faith and his orchestra. You had this huge bandwidth of music, and now it's all 
separated into Americana and R&B, which I don't recognize anymore. And, you know, it's it totally changed. But back then, everything was like put into the top 40. So uh, there was something for everybody in there. Uh, there were no genres in music, really. And that's, you know, we listened to... Uh, we listened to a lot of Jerry Lee Lewis and, and uh, Gene Vincent and Elvis and all the doo-wop groups that came out of New York and Philadelphia and Chicago and uh, had a, you know, it's the soundtrack of our lives, basically, sit there, have a radio on, working on your car with other people. And, uh, you know, we're doing a, been working on a script with Michael Douglas for eight years about the downshifters. So we're, we're, uh, hopefully getting toward the end of that. We met with him last May in New York, and he gave us some very specific instruction about what he thought uh, we should include in it. So that's, I guess, the short answer. Yeah, and one thing I love about your songwriting, too, is that you can hear traces of all of that in it, and it's such a timeless sound because it was so good and so diverse, like you said. But uh, earlier on, you mentioned your first band. Would you would you tell us a little bit about that and the kind of what you did? Yeah, um, I also went to high school with a guy named Barry Tashin, who was in the Remains, who opened for the Beatles in 1966. And Barry lives here in Nashville, and is still a good friend of mine. Uh, but I I was in a band at Transylvania University where I went to college in uh, in 64 and 65. And it was, uh, you know, we played all the, you know, we had a couple of originals and then we played Ricky Nelson covers and, you know, you name it covers. So, uh, and we did sock hops and, you know, we had a little uh, gig on a radio station in Mount Sterling, Kentucky, which is about 30 miles away. We thought we were the Beatles, you know, so... <laughs> Tell us about the name of that band, too. Little Hilton and the Artisans. Little Hilton, uh, Hilton Winley, was the lead singer, so we decided to call him Little Hilton. And the Artisans, I think our drummer, Jerry Morris, uh, who's, who actually toured with Dick Clark's Cavalcade of Stars later, uh, he named us the Artisans. So that's... You know that was the genesis of the name. There, there wasn't anything magical attached to it, but uh, we had a good time. And is that also the first time you got to see in a recording studio from? The we did. We we recorded in some guy's garage in Lexington, and the songwriters were from Cincinnati, and they had uh, a hit called "Easier Said Than Done" by the Essex. And so we were demo. We demoed two songs for them till the Mets win the pennant, and. Uh, I can't think of the title of the other one. It'll come to me. But uh, anyway, a slow one and a fast one. So, uh, And the Mets eventually did win the pennant. So it took a while, like 20 years. <laughs> but that's, you know, we just, we kind of started, we started off. That was my first experience in a recording studio. So, Is it also around the same time that you started writing songs? You know, I had... When I graduated from college, I really started thinking about writing songs. And my cousin, John Fristo, who played for Joe South and, and had a, a brief career in Atlanta on his own, uh, uh, kind of was a great guitar player. So he 
he came to visit me in Connecticut and we sat down and I ordered a Sears Silvertone acoustic guitar and you know the strings were about an inch off the fret but anyway I persevered and learned some chords and that's when I really started thinking about writing songs and you know you mow the grass and you make up lyrics that you can't remember to songs so that's how I started you know probably like a lot of songwriters I know Dan Penn uh, who, who along with Jeff Gillette produced my three records uh, said he started that way too you know you can't remember the lyrics so you make them up so that's what I that's what I did yeah and earlier you mentioned a song called Oliver Street right how did that come about and how that whole connection with with high pocket stunk and how how did that come about well I met high in a in a radio station he owned and you know once he told me that he had been Buddy Holly's manager you know I had this tape that I just recorded so I said would you mind listening to it and he said you know sure so um, that I mean that was my introduction to him and of course you know that was 1968 that was nine years after Buddy died that song didn't that kind of make they had a little bit of an interesting life to it it you? did it um, I wrote it about my wife actually we were dating at the time Susan in uh, in Washington and uh, I wrote it about her I lived on I lived on uh, M Street and Olive Street was the next street above us M and 28th Street in, in uh, Georgetown and she lived over on Prospect Street in Georgetown so anyway I just made up the name Oliver Street and uh, I took that song to England in 1969 and I visited Ab uh, I visited Apple uh, Studios at 3 Savile Row and I walked in off the street and I told them you know I live in Dallas Texas and I uh, or Houston at the time and I'm a songwriter and they said well what have you got and I, I gave him the mono tape of uh, Oliver Street and he played it and he said uh, that's a good song he said it you know we'd like to sign you to a one, you know, a one song contract. So I left there with a one song contract and, and, uh, at Nimpor house, which was the Beatles publishing company. And, um, so it never got recorded, but it was, uh, an interesting, you know, it was an interesting turn with that song. It kind of opened a door and it also kind of validates you as a songwriter too. So to have, you know people like that and that was a you know that was a pretty heady time to be in London too because the Beatles were uh, little did anybody else know it but they were on their last legs you know as a band but uh, it sort of validated me as a songwriter so you know I just made up my mind that I was going to pursue it you know it took me a, another two or three years to really screw up the courage to move to Los Angeles but I finally did that and uh, but that song Oliver Street got recorded still yeah uh, not through not through Apple but can you tell us a little bit about that recording the well the studio was uh, Joe somebody I forget his name but he ran a music store and uh, he played keyboards and he had a guitar player who was who taught guitar lessons at the guitar studio so he had a studio in his house 
And he actually cut a couple of bands that Sonny and the Sunliners, who had a big, they had a couple of really big regional hits. They're kind of a Tex-Mex band, but they also um, kind of did a little R&B in there too. So uh, he cut them, and uh, it was a you know it was a session lasted about an hour, I guess. And my job was just sing the song because they were the the background and he had a I think he had a very I don't I don't know if there's a drum machine on there or not I can't remember but that was the genesis of of the song and then it actually when the when I got released from that uh contract with Apple um I took it to um Major Bill Smith in in uh, Fort Worth Texas who uh, actually, uh, Delbert McClinton was signed yeah. to baby, him. Hey, and the, baby, hey baby, Chanel. Bruce Chanel, and uh, he wanted it, so um, I gave it to him. But nothing ever happened to it. He was going to take it to Shelby Singleton, and I don't know what it, you know. Nothing ever came of it. But uh, you know, again, you know, he thought it was worth pursuing. So that just kind of made me even more determined to do to explore music full-time in Los Angeles so it was kind of the thing that it was kind of the the force that moved me forward that one song I never thought about it that way but you're right yeah and didn't somebody was his name Dave Diamond or something David Diamond cut a song of ours called Hobo John which was a song uh, that I had originally written that got rewritten uh, with a guy and his wife in L.A. And um, that that was released in 1976, right as I was leaving Los Angeles. And that, you know, got some airplay on country stations. He was a big disc jockey in uh, L.A. He just died last year in Minnesota, where he was from. But uh, that got some airplay around the country in uh, um so you know it's it is what it is you know still got yeah. the single but before you moved to california you also met an artist by the name of robin reynolds yes and tell me a little bit about that. robin was a uh there was an air force base base called goodfella air force base in uh san angelo it was a uh, kind of a secret intelligence base where they decoded messages. And this is at the height of the Vietnam War. And Robin, I met him in a club. He played really great bossa nova guitar, and he was a great songwriter. He's from Arkansas. And I've tried many times to get in touch with him, but I've never been able to. Uh, but anyway, I met him in a club, and I took him into Joe's studio, where I'd done my little record, and recorded, I don't know, four sides on him or something like that. And... Uh, I love the songs still. I think they're, uh, I think they're commercial, and uh, uh, but you know, who knew? You know, this guy's playing in a club, and I was just taken by him. He's great, real good guitar player, real good performer, and he certainly had the bossa nova idiom down. So, uh, and I love bossa nova music. So I said, "What the hell? I'll take him in the studio and record him." Yeah, so. and not. Too long after that, you decided you will move to Los Angeles. Yeah, I 
I went from San Angelo to Houston and from Houston to uh, Dallas. And uh, I spent a year there. And then at that point, Susan and I decided to get married and go to L.A. And we landed in Malibu at John Phillips' manager's house, Bill Cleary. Bill and Judy Cleary, who were dear friends of ours. Uh, and um, so... We spent a month in Malibu, got married there, and set up housekeeping in Santa Monica. But Bill introduced me to a guy named Paul Surratt, who John Phillips had cut a couple of sides on uh, up at his studio in Bel Air. And, um, uh, and Paul also knew Graham Parsons. So I met Graham through Paul. Paul put a band together, and it took them five years, but they finally got... They got a one album deal with 20th Century. And this, I don't know who the marketing people named them, Rockville Junction. And I don't think the album sold five copies. I mean, it, it just stiffed because I don't think they promoted it. But uh, anyway, all through that six or six and a half years in LA, I met a guy named Al Kasha uh, at UCLA who really was one of my mentors and he was a he won two academy awards for the poseidon adventure and for the uh towering inferno and uh al took an interest in me and he um you know he put me in a in a songwriting class and then he invited me to an advanced songwriting class and um i was working at the burbank studios i think and my wife had a job with uh at columbia's studios with uh lloyd bridges she worked for him so i you know al taught me a lot and i wrote a lot with guys i went in the studio a lot hung out with guys that were uh in the birds kevin kelly and some of those guys and graham a little bit and uh, the animals guys that played in the animals hilton valentine andy summers who went on to be in the police and uh so they, was, they were friends that I saw. Mick Wilshire, who was in the new vaudeville band, it had a big hit called Winchester Cathedral. So I hung out with a lot of these guys, and I learned a lot, you know, and I, I would write songs and play them for them, and they would say, well, we're playing out at the Sundance Saloon or something. Why don't you come out, and we'll back you up, and, you know, you can do some of your songs, you know, because we like them. So I had, uh, <laughs> I had some pretty good backup going on uh, a lot of a lot of the time so anyway um that was kind of my la experience you know yeah. it was it was fun i learned a lot would you mind sharing a little bit of kind of the scene you know around la and at that mm -hmm. time when you got there who were some of the venues and some of the bands that were, were sure um well, there was the Corral in Topanga, and then there was the Sundance Saloon, and all kinds of people came to the Sundance, on, especially on weekends. But after the Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour, uh, John Hartford would come out there and just play, you know, and uh, there were remnants of the birds and the animals, and they would get up and play, and... Um, it was a, 
uh, Three Dog Night, when I moved there, they'd had a couple of hits and they were just taking off. I actually got interviewed as their road manager, but I, I had to say no when they asked me if I would cart drugs around for the band. I said, I'm not interested. <laughs> so, uh, and the guy that actually took that job got arrested. So, um, God, there were, you know, Three Dog Night, um, The Grassroots. I was signed to ABC as a songwriter with Mandy Martin in uh, the, I'll tell you an interesting story. Sneaky Pete Kleinau, who was a steel player in the Burrito Brothers, and I knew all those guys. Uh, I met Chris Etheridge at John Phillips' house doing some sessions. Um, so Chris, uh, Pete uh, and I were in the studio doing, he did steel overdubs, and it sounds like the London Symphony Orchestra on a couple of things, and he played straight steel guitar on a couple of things, but it was, it was the evening that we found out that Graham Parsons had died in Joshua Tree, the Joshua Inn out in Joshua Tree, California, and the next morning, about 11 o'clock, we were breaking up, and, uh, coming down the stairs and I saw Terry Cashman who was Jim Croce's uh, producer came down the stairs as white as a sheet and I said you know what's wrong Terry and he said Jim Croce just went down in an airplane crash in Nacogdoches Louisiana and I I mean we were both Pete and I were both just like stunned into silence uh, but having met AJ and shared that story with him uh you know, it's uh, amazing because he was, I think, two years old at the time. And I'm sure he barely, if he remembers anything about his dad, he barely remembers him. So, uh, and now he's on to greater things. Dan Penn just produced a great album on him. So if you get a chance to buy it, snap it up because it's, I think, 12 on the charts as we speak today. Um, so, you know, I'm kind of, going all over the place here but i had a good time full experience in california i had too good a time <laughs> so i was running with a pretty fast cloud i met crowd i met the eagles when they were linda ronstadt's backup band but uh right after they'd recorded their first album but before it had been released they were all out at the palomino club and i saw linda in fact i used her band on these demos that we were talking about sneaky pete was in that band and i met spooner oldham that night standing up he was playing piano for her and uh the meeting that almost didn't happen spooner was late and he walked up to the back and the the uh, bouncer didn't want to let him in and he said well tell linda i was here and all of a sudden somebody i guess through the thing saw him and ran out in the parking lot and brought him back in but uh i, I wouldn't have met him were it were it not for her manager running out in the parking lot and getting him out of his car yeah we'll talk some sure. more about spooner and dan okay. here in a minute yeah. but you just mentioned the palomino oh, yeah. would you mind just maybe telling a little more about that scene it was uh it was a great time to be in california i used to go out there and do talent night with uh, a couple of friends of mine greg leroy and uh, judd huss and uh his brother 
and it was crazy. And the the Troubadour was another club I played in actually once as a as a part of a band. And um, all those places, I mean, you could go in those places at night and see just about anybody. And the Sundance was another place. Eric Burden used to hang out there. Um, God, uh, who's the steel player? He had his name, Bobby, I mean, not, uh, Buddy Emmons used to be at the uh, Sundance all the time. The Everly Brothers, one or both of them would come out there. I met Phil Everly at the Palomino Club sitting at the bar the same night I met Spooner. And we were just sitting there talking, you know, just like we're talking. And uh, somebody else was there, I can't remember, but uh, it was pretty wide open I mean it was an incredible it was an incredible time to be in LA you could still drive around just about any time of the day or night and it's now it's a traffic jam but um, it was fun I mean it was uh, and people you knew we shared a uh, rehearsal space with Jackson Brown so I met guys that were in white trash you know Edgar Winters band and we jammed together I mean there were jams going on all the time. I met Paul Rothschild, who came out to. We, in fact, we split a bottle of Liebfrau milk sitting on the ground listening to this band I was helping manage, and uh, he came out and listened to them. And we had a, I, we must have talked for an hour, an hour and a half, and he, I played him a couple of songs after the band, you know, had kind of taken a break, and he liked them, you know, and that was just about around the time that he was cutting. Uh, Pearl, which happened to be Janis Joplin's last record, and uh, never which forget he was Spooner Oldham connection there too. Spooner Oldham was probably the last person to ever see her alive. Uh, she said, "Why don't you come back to the hotel with me or the motel where she was staying?" And he said, "No, I've got to be out in La Crescenta with my family." And so the next morning, he gets up and gets a phone call that she's passed. You know, so. Um, but I didn't see Spooner until, gosh, 78 or 9 after that. So that was about five years later or six yeah. years later in Atlanta. He came with Eddie Hinton playing yeah. with him. And, I and we'll, him. we'll talk about that yeah. just in a minute. What was the name <clears throat> of the band you were helping manage that you just mentioned? Well, they, they first they were called Ankh, which is the Egyptian sign for woman. And then they were eventually on 20th Century called Rockville Junction, which I thought was a horrible name for a band. I guess it was Brownsville Station was had a popular song, so they decided to, you know, morph that name. But uh, and they were good. They were good musicians. Uh, but as as many people know in this business, you know, not even one hit wonders. But they did. You know, they did get an album out and. Uh, they did, the record company didn't promote it. So, uh, you know, that's life yeah. as we know it. Let me ask you about sure. a few more of your contemporaries out there. One of them is Kevin Kelly, who was a short-time drummer right. uh, for the Birds, and he was also a member of Rising Suns. Mm -hmm. uh, Tosh Mahal Rikuder. and Rikuder's mm -hmm. early band. That's right. How did you get to meet him? And how, tell me a little bit about him. I don't remember exactly how I got to meet Kevin. I just know I went over to his house um, 
that he was renting. And he had a little rehearsal space there. And I, I looked at the, his drum kit, which was in a case. And I saw rising suns with a line through it. And then I saw the birds with a line through it. And I went, wow. And Kevin was uh, quite a guy. He's, he's the focus in volume two of Requiem for the Timeless now that Johnny Rogan wrote. And I was quoted a little bit in the first book, but a lot more in the, in the chapter on Kevin in the volume two book. But Kevin was... Uh, and that is was, a book that talks about the history of the birds. The birds, and the, and the volume two is actually the birds that have died. So you got Mike Clark and, you know, all the guys that, that have passed on Skip Batten and uh, met them all, actually, at one point or another. But there's a chapter on Kevin and Johnny called me probably 10 or 12 years ago. And nobody knew anything about Kevin. And Kevin and I wrote together. We recorded together. We played live together. And uh, he... Uh, he was an Irishman. His dad was with Patton during World War II. He was an attorney. He was Ozzie and Harriet's attorney. Uh, and uh, he, his, his mother and, and father divorced when he was about six years old, which is a tough... And he's also Chris Hillman's first cousin. Their mo the mothers were sisters. So Chris is the one that got him into the Burrito Brothers. I mean, excuse me. Chris is the one that got him into the Birds when Mike Clark left. And he was the first person to go into the birds who wasn't an original bird. And uh, he was there 18 months. And Graham joined a few months after. And, uh, and you they know- They recorded one of his songs on Sweethearts of the Road. They did. They, uh, they came to Nashville and uh, Columbia Records and in the Quonset Hut and they cut uh, Sweethearts of the Rodeo. And, uh, which has turned out to be an apocryphal record. Uh, at the time, it didn't sell a lot, but it was really kind of the first, it was before the Eagles or anybody. So it's really the first country rock record, if you want to say that, uh, that hybrid. Uh, and they had a lot of guests on there uh, who were wonderful too. So uh, Kevin was really a part of all that. And... Uh, you know, as the birds uh, progressed and as uh, uh, I'm thinking about the guitar player, um, his brother Roland, Clarence, Clarence, Clarence White, White, thank you. When Clarence came, he kind of, I think he wanted to put a different spin on it. Now, I, could, I can't say this with certainty, but I think he kind of edged Kevin out, you know, because Kevin had very specific ideas and he wasn't afraid to to uh, put them out there and I think he and maybe the little conflict with Clarence so he got edged out of the birds and and uh, he played in a group though called Gas Food and Lodging which had Bill Plummer who wound up on uh, Exile on Main Street playing the upright bass uh, for the Rolling Stones and uh, you know, that Lynn Blessing, who was a jazz vibes player, and these guys could play anything, Mark McClure uh, and Kevin and uh, Artie Johnson, who's a great guitar player. So those guys never really got an album deal. Uh, we've got some actually tracks with them but um, that you've archived. 
but a uh, great band, a great live band. And uh, so anyway, Kevin kind of, he never capitalized on being a bird. He, you know, he never put himself out there, you know, ex-bird Kevin Kelly, this, that, and the other. He just let it go. And, uh, you know, he had a sad, had a sad life. And uh, he drifted into drugs and alcohol. And, and uh, I talked to him a few weeks before he died, and I offered him a plane ticket to Nashville. We were getting ready to go in the studio, my first record at Dan's. And I think we both realized he wasn't in any shape to do it, but uh, he died uh, shortly thereafter, and uh, very, very sad actually. So, uh, but he was a hell of a guy, and he was a hell of a musician, and a great drummer. And uh, you know, he played with Phil Oaks at the at Carnegie Hall. He's on that record where Phil's in a gold LeMay Elvis getup, and uh, that was a. So Kevin, you know, um, Kevin made the rounds. I mean, he was, everybody liked him, you know, and uh, he and Jeff and Alex Dumhofsky all lived together at 4450 Colbath Avenue in, in uh, Sherman Oaks in the band house. And he was very generous with me, I'll say. And we wrote a couple of songs uh, that, that um, who did Buzz work for? Uh, out in California, he produced Nancy Sinatra. Snuff Garrett. Snuff Garrett. They're his property. So we got, we recorded a couple of demos and publishing demos for them. And uh, but he's a sweet guy. I loved Kevin. And there's a picture of Kevin holding our daughter Simone, who's about three years old, in this new volume too. So I just mailed her a copy of it. Yeah, I'm glad. His story is chronicled in this yeah, book. Yeah, and I, I turned Johnny Rogan on to Jeff Gillette and Shannon O'Neill and Gus Duffy and all these peripheral people who knew Kevin. And uh, I gave him their phone numbers and email addresses, and he got in touch with them. So through all of us, there's a much better picture of of Kevin, of course, beyond the birds and... Uh, rising Taj sun. Mahal and the Rising Suns, yeah. And so another group of people you were around are the Curtis brothers. Yeah, Rick and Mike, and Tom. Great. Uh, I've got um, their sister um, singing on a demo called "No Easy Way Out," and they're great songwriters. And they they had a hit. Uh, a, well, they had the flip side of um Helen Reddy's huge hit it's it's called Don't Mess with a Woman they wrote that and um they lived in New York for a while and got to know Tiny Tim this was in the late 60s and um Helen Reddy and uh Helen Reddy's hit and then they had a huge hit with Southern Cross uh Stephen Stills liked the song that they had written and um there are two versions of that. There's the Curtis Brothers' first version, and then there's the version that includes the chorus. Excuse me. And uh, Stephen wrote verses, uh, turned it kind of into a sailing song. So it's. 
they did really well with that. And Mike is still alive. Rick died several years ago uh, in California, but Mike lives here in Nashville up in Hendersonville, and he's still playing. And I think Tom uh, lives in California, and he's still involved in the music business. He also builds guitars, I think, too. So, uh, And the sister, Patty Moan, uh, is is still, I think, singing. I'm not sure, but uh, very talented family. Yeah, and, they uh, put out an album as the Curtis Brothers too. They did, and it was uh, well received. It's a great record if you if you can find it or you know download it or whatever. Uh, and they were in a band, and they were from Goshen, Indiana. They were in a band called the Visitors with a Z. Uh, so, uh, but Rick and I were very good friends and he, he's also a person that encouraged me a lot. You know, he's, he said, you know, you got a lot of ability and he was very helpful. So. And that's just an interesting story because for a while they were also members of Crazy Horse. They were with Greg Leroy and and Billy Talbot. Yeah. Yeah. And they also wrote Blue Letter that Blue Letter Fleetwood Mac had a huge hit with that. So great songwriters, thank you. And I remember actually meeting Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks at at Rick's house. They came, knocked on the door, and came in. They were collecting bottles. This was before. <laughs> this was after they'd done the Buckingham Nicks record, and I, I guess they were out of money. I don't know, but anyway, Richard Dashett who was the producer of Fleetwood Mac, had just gotten them all together. And I think Rick may have introduced Richard to them, but Fleetwood Mac was looking for uh, replacements. And uh, it just so happened they got in on, they got in on rumors, I guess it was. And, uh, you know, never looked back after that. I mean, and very talented, nice people too, very talented people. Yeah. So before we move on, I would like to ask you one more question about your days in L.A., and which is somewhat of a curiosity. Yeah. um, You kind of, and I'll have you elaborate on that, kind of got to collaborate with Billy Preston, which is kind of a funny story. How how did that, what what was that all about? Jeff was recording Billy Preston at Kendon Recorders, and... Billy had three songs that he didn't have any lyrics to, and Jeff liked my lyrics. And so he said, Billy, I've got this guy that, um, you know, Charlie Taylor, who's a good lyricist. So anyway, uh, I went to the studio. I met Billy. And, um, you know, he said, here's the tape. See what you can do with it. So I took it back, and about two weeks later, I think there are three songs, and uh, I I wrote lyrics to him, took him back. About that time, he bolted L.A. with Sarita Wright, who was married to Stevie Wonder, and they ran off to New York together. I've still got the, you know, we've, you know, we've still got the rough demos that I did and uh, got back to him, but I never heard from him again. You know, uh, Bittersweet was one of the songs, and. Uh, I can't think of the other two titles off the top of my head, but uh, it was fun meeting him. I mean, it was, uh, I think he was pretty loaded and he had an afro that was about three feet across. I mean, he could, he had to duck to get through the door. 
but uh he was riding high man i mean he just finished with the beatles and you know they were he was in big demand too so and he he had some huge hits uh, really standards now i, I suppose so nothing from nothing and you know you are so beautiful uh and he wrote those with i want to say a guy it's like bruce fisher bruce or somebody fisher. yeah great great lyricist wonderful lyricist so anyway that was a kind of a glancing blow with billy preston but uh, it was fun it was an ex it was an interesting experience meeting him and you know he had a great band behind him i'll tell you that it's incredible yeah. so around the same time your first daughter simone was born yeah 73 and, uh, march 16th and you decided to uh find a more stable life i guess to raise a family i did i was drinking too much and running around with my head on fire and i just you know after trying for six years to be the next big thing i realized that wasn't going to happen for me for a variety of reasons so i thought well i can go i'd already worked for the american cancer society raising money for them in in uh, successfully i might add and um i you know just made a decision and talked to my wife about it tried to get a publishing company off the last eight or nine months i was in uh la and that that was kind of a fleeting experience so i just decided to leave and probably one of the best decisions of my life in retrospect you know I'd learned a lot about songwriting. I'm still learning a lot about it. And, but I just decided I didn't want to raise my daughter, our daughter in uh, LA. It was just hectic, you know. So we moved and we moved to Tampa, Florida. And I don't think I picked up a guitar for at least a year after I moved. It was just kind of a uh, coming down from that LA experience. And uh, they roll the streets up at six, p.m. in Tampa so it was it was a kind of a rough adjustment but it was a you know it was a good thing my wife had worked in California and so she didn't have to work then so we had a very stable home life and uh, after two or three years there I mo we moved to Atlanta and that's when I really got fell back into the kind of songwriting I met Bob Killen and I met you know of course John Fristo was my first cousin and he was at the time backing up Billy Joe Royal and he'd had a song cut by the Atlanta rhythm section called join the race to enter space and he knew all those guys and Bill Lowry he'd, he took me around introduced me to all these Joe South he played in his band and he introduced me to all these people and so I got the bug again you know started writing and you know I haven't stopped you know so i'm glad you have it well thank you well you're obviously one of my main co-writers these days too so that's gratifying you know it is for me so well it is for me too it's fun we've written some good songs together and we'll write some more absolutely and a little earlier you mentioned that while living in atlanta i guess towards the end of the 70s you got to reconnect with spooner Aldum. I did. How did that happen? Well, uh, I called Spooner. I was doing a huge benefit for the American Cancer Society. I was at, at that point 
the executive director for the Metropolitan Unit of the American Cancer Society in Fulton County, which is the metro county for Atlanta. And um, one of the things that I did was we did when Ambassador Andrew Young was, Carter was president, he was the ambassador to the UN. And so we decided to do an event called Super Tennis Week in Atlanta. And, and the focus of the event was uh, the, the tennis was kind of a peripheral thing to get a lot more people involved, but the focus was to do a, uh, a full-on tribute to Andrew Young when he was the ambassador to the UN. So I got, we got Bill Cosby to MC uh, all this. This is before all the negative publicity on him. And um, we had Gladys Knight, James Brown, Jim Brown, who was a you know Hall of Fame football player for the Cleveland Browns, Oscar Robertson, you know, uh, I, I don't know. There were the dais was full of movie stars and and television stars. So Jet Magazine, since it was a uh, you know predominantly uh, black focused event, uh, were our sponsors. We had Kodak, we had American Airlines, and hotels and all this stuff so we it was televised actually it was taped i've never seen a copy of it but uh, i think jet magazine taped it and uh it was you know it was a hell of an event and uh that there was something i don't remember how many people but it was maybe two thousand people there i mean it was in the grand ballroom of the high regency hotel in atlanta it was huge but I got to spend an afternoon with James Brown, you know, and his manager. And that was, and that's when he was stone sober. He was a hell of a nice guy to me. I mean, I, I don't know what, you know, I, I know he had a checkered past, but he was stone sober that day and he came on and did a great job for us. So, um, you know, I did Rick Nelson at the Fox Theater as a part of that too. And Rick, and I became really, I spent a week with him in Atlanta, so we became fast friends, and I knew him until he died. But there's uh, another Barry Tashian connection, too. Yeah, I met him, I met Barry when he was uh, actually, um, he was her music director. Um, Amy Lou Harris. Amy Lou Harris, thank you. Saved me again. <laughs> and Phil Kaufman, I met him when he was her road manager, and he was the guy that set Graham on fire in the desert. <laughs> I actually went out to Cap Rock last time I was in Joshua Tree working for Vanderbilt and uh, just sat there and tried to visualize what went on that night. But anyway, yeah, Barry and I met up in Atlanta and, and rekindled our friendship. And he was, I think he had just moved to Atlanta at that, uh, excuse me, to Nashville at that point. He lived in Thousand Oaks when I was in California, but I think he moved to Nashville somewhere at 85 or something like that, almost at maybe even before that so he worked he was her uh band he was her band leader for 10 years on the road and uh recorded with her uh worked with alvin lee or albert lee excuse me who i also knew uh at the sundance saloon in california when he was with head hands and feet so there were all these british these british guys that had either mustered out of a band or were looking for something else to do that were hanging out in Los Angeles at that point and, uh, when we lived in California. And boy, 
it was a rich environment. I mean, you know, they were always out at the Sundance Saloon in one configuration or another. Um, so, you know, yeah, Barry, in fact, I saw him, he came through uh, Lexington, where we live now, Kentucky, about three weeks ago. They went up to a bluegrass, they taught a workshop up in West Virginia, and um, we had lunch together. So I'm trying to get him on the... Wood songs. Wood songs, old-time radio hour, Michael Jonathan's program at the Lyric Theater in uh, Lexington. Hopefully that'll that'll pan out. So yeah, we'll see. Anyway. So you talked about those benefits, which you continued to do in many of those. Also right. up here in Nashville. Yeah. And uh, but where we got started was you reconnecting with Spooner Oldham. So he oh. came to Atlanta. Can you just? He came to Atlanta with um, Eddie Hinton. Eddie Hinton. Thanks again. And they were playing in little five points in a club. And I bet there weren't five people in that club. And it was cold as blue blazes. It was in the middle of the winter. And uh, I had invited Spooner to this, to a cocktail party to actually meet Gladys Knight. And he came. And, uh, you know, I introduced him and everything. And certainly told her about his songwriting and Dan and all that stuff. So, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, we, I went to this little club and here's Eddie Hinton and he's sober as a judge and he's singing his tail off and Spooner's playing with him and I think they had a drummer and I'm not even sure there was a bass player. It was like the three of them and man, Eddie was like marching in place, singing and playing guitar. It was, he blew my head off. I mean, he was amazing that night and there was almost nobody there and I remember uh, going out to the car and and Roxanne was a baby, a little yeah, baby. Daughter. Yeah, and and uh, uh, Spooner's wife Karen was. They were in the car, and I said, you know, God, you're gonna freeze. You need to come inside. But um, that was my introduction. To, it's the only time I ever met Eddie. But he was nice. He had jalapeno peppers. He was offering everybody a jalapeno pepper. So whatever it was. He was uh, on fire that night. I remember that. It just it and his guitar playing. He was everything about him was just fabulous, you know. And uh, you know, he kind of ended up like Kevin. You know, it, it's a sad, very sad story. But he was on that night. I'm glad I got to see him at it in full possession of his powers because they were awesome. Yeah, and you know, he's a huge influence on me too. Absolutely. And there's going to be some more Muscle Shoals connections here in just a minute. Yeah. But after uh, quite a few years in Atlanta and your son Trevor was born to Right, there, seven years. You moved up here did. to Nashville. But even before you met somebody who I guess at that point just moved to, had moved to Nashville and that's Dan Penn. Yes. So how did you get to meet him? Was that through Spooner? I, it was. Um uh, I came here for a meeting, uh, I think a cancer society meeting, and um, I was here over the weekend, and uh, my mother had just died, and my dad was up here for this meeting. So anyway, um, I came up, and I called Spooner from the hotel, and he came out to visit, in the Maxwell house, as a matter of fact, and he came out to visit 
with me and he said, you know, what are you doing this weekend? Because the meeting was over. And I said, I'm, you know, I'm not doing anything. So he said, why don't you come out to the house and hang out with me? And so I, you know, he lived uh, on Wallace Lane. So I came out and spent the evening with them. But, you know, he and Karen had, had kind of moved in there and Roxanne was a little, really a toddler at that point. And um, he took me by Dan's and uh, uh, I met Dan for the first time and we went out in his 35 Plymouth and laid a strip of rubber about 100 feet long and <laughs> on, the, on a beer run. And yeah, and I know you and Dan not only connect through music, but connect cars. through your mutual yeah. love of cars. Yeah, and Dan and I went on an 1,100-mile, almost 2,000-mile round trip to uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota to buy a 49 Ford for me, and then we towed it back behind Dan's pickup truck. So that was really the first time we spent a lot of time together. But that we wrote the first song we wrote together was... Uh, the fir- the opening song on my first record, um, King of Saturday Night, and then we we started writing more and more. So I don't know. We've probably written over a dozen songs together, maybe more than that. Um, so, uh, but yeah, interested in cars and interested in just in in R and B music and Dan's a obviously a great producer and um, very very fortunate that he's been involved with the three records that I've recorded. Yeah, and we'll talk about sure. those three in just a minute, but you and Dan, you continued doing some drives to car shows oh. and the like, but also yeah. tell me a little bit about B3 organ you found for him. I was in Knoxville uh, when I was the uh, president of the Arthritis Foundation in Tennessee. I went over with an attorney We'd gone to a board meeting, and he said, would you mind if we just stopped off at this? I've got a client here, and her husband just died, and we're trying to sell her estate. So I said, great, you know. So we went to uh, this woman's house, and the first thing I saw when we went uh, into her house was this beautiful B3 organ with a Leslie pristine condition you know and i waited until they got their business done and i said wow do you play the organ and she said no my husband played it but he you know he's deceased and she said i don't i didn't play it you know i don't play it and my kids aren't interested in it i said would you ever consider selling it and she said yeah i'd sell it and and i said well uh, what would you have to have for it do you think and she said three thousand dollars and she showed me she pulled the seat up and showed me the original bill of sale from norwalk connecticut and i think the bill of sale was like three thousand dollars 1957 and the i got back i got back to nashville called dan i said i have found an organ pristine b3 in this lady's living room, and she's entered in the cellar for 3000 bucks. And he said, give me your number. So he and I and Carson Whitsitt, God bless him and rest him, got a trailer, hooked it up behind Dan's truck or car, I guess, I don't remember, and drove to Knoxville like 
two days later or something or the next weekend and bought this organ. I think Dan bought it over the phone and um, loaded it in the uh, trailer and hossed it back to Dan's studio. And I think the only thing he had to do was reconstitute the plug, you know, but otherwise it's awesome. You know, it's amazing shape and it's, it's beautiful. So anyway, there's the B3 story. Yeah, and you spent considerably more time in Dan's studio after that, too. Um, around the turn of the century, you decided to record your first full-length album as an artist. How, right. how, did you, how did you decide that you wanted to do that, or how did that come about? Well, I was sitting in Dan's studio on his couch, and I helped Dan, uh, Bucky Lindsay, and I helped uh, Tom Gent build his studio we put the ceiling in let's put it that way and i i don't think my shoulder's ever been the same but anyway dan and i were sitting there one day and um it was 2000 probably one and uh, it just out of the blue we were t you know we'd written several songs together and he said you know you really deserve to make an album charlie you're a good songwriter and of course coming from dan penn that's the you know ultimate accolade and i said you know dan i'd love to do it but trevor's getting ready to go to college and i don't know if i can <laughs> i don't i don't think i can afford to do it he said don't worry about it i'll give you the studio time and i said that's very generous but i i can't accept it so i'll tell you what i'll do i'll give you my 49 ford <laughs> So I traded a 49 Ford Coupe for studio time for my first record, and that's the way it got done, you know. And then I obviously paid the musicians, but uh, who were great. I mean, Carson and Spooner and uh, Mike Leach from the Memphis Boys and, you know, all these incredible... Uh, you had a couple of really special guitar players on it, too, with quite some history. Yeah, Rick Vito and uh, Mike... Um, Durham. Durham, thank you. And did Rick Fido play on that one too? He did. He played slide guitar on two tracks. That's that's and, pretty uh, good. <laughs> yeah, and Ian Wallace was the drummer. Who's a he? You know, he's a hell of a drummer. He drummed for Dylan and uh, Don Henley, who's a drummer. So you figure that <laughs> he got the best there is. And Ian, God bless Ian, he's gone too. But uh, he lives on. Uh, through his recording he played with king crimson too i mean he's a hell of a drummer um but yeah that came together uh quite quickly actually and uh you know it it stereophile magazine picked uh once upon a time as one of the best 80 records released in 2003 so and it got into the grammy awards guide it didn't get nominated but it was you know, one of those small the group of records yeah. that where the nominations came from. So, but I felt honored uh, about that. And, you know, Dan is uh, a great producer. And I had Jeff Gillette, who's one of the best engineers, who's worked for Sergio Mendez. And the, na the names go on and on uh, that who he's been associated with. Uh, he's been he doing... works with the Yellow Jackets yeah. currently tours with them and does their live sound but he's 
I mean, he the he cut his teeth on Stevie Wonder, you know, uh, the first record he ever did. He spent a year with him in the studio at Kendon in L.A. So he's worked with everybody. And uh, I just saw him a couple of weeks ago. We went sailing together up in New Jersey. So that's, yeah. you know, that's how all he... that happened came by creative workshop here a couple of years ago mm -hmm. he told me that he beta tested some of those those fierce consoles right right exactly which, which was a funny little side note for me but apparently and that album came out in 2002 i believe it did it apparently must have wet your appetite because you got to make another couple albums right and uh for All I Am was the second one. I think it came Correct. out in 2007. Uh, yeah, seven or eight. I think it was released and in eight. Tell me a little bit about that album. King of Sat... Let's see. Uh, that's Where Did Buddy Holly Go? Um, that's a... A lot of people like that album a lot. Um, it's, it's kind of all over the place. Again, um, horns on several uh several of the tracks um you know great players uh bobby emmons uh from the memphis boys stepped in with spooner and um mike durham again um mike leach uh with the memphis boys yeah you pretty much reassembled the gang from the I, I did. first album and dan sings background on all my records but uh the first record, I had Jimmy Griffin, too, from Bread. He and Dan sang all over that record, and I got to sing with Jimmy, actually, uh, on a couple of cuts, and uh, boy, what a thrill. I mean, Jimmy won an Oscar for the song For uh, for All We Know by the Carpenters. He wrote that, and uh, he won an Academy Award. It was Song of the Year in 1970. Yeah. And so, and a great vocalist, I mean. You know, bread. You, what can you say? <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned a lot of people. Uh, you know, really like that album. It's it's my favorite of yours too. Yeah. Um, and it's it's hard to describe why, but I just love its laid back feel. And some is almost a little bit of a Jimmy Buffett territory. And yeah, it's Sea it's of Abaco. Sea of Abaco, right? Thank you. And uh, um, I love where did Buddy Holly go? I mean, yeah, I that, that might might be my favorite on that album. They, at his 50th, the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of his death, they played that uh, all over the radio in Lubbock, and they played it in his museum in Lubbock. I sent it to them, and they said, I guarantee you we'll put it on full rotation. And, and uh, so that was that was great. Um, I, I love the line I, I drove up through a... Uh, Clear Lake once speeding ticket, ticket is, is all, all I got. got. Yeah, that's. I remember the day that happened, February third, nineteen fifty nine. I was standing outside of the cafeteria in, at Staples High School, and somebody came running up and said, "Have you heard the news?" He said, "What are you talking about?" And they said, "Buddy Holly, the big bopper, and Richie Valens went down in a plane in Clear Lake, Iowa. They're dead." And it was just like, "Good Lord!" And then you go home, and it's all all the news for the next two or three days that's all you saw you know so huge impact and i love buddy holly so uh anyway uh yeah still resonates and shortly after you released that album is when we met we yes. met at skirmerhorn 
when uh, the Musici- Musicians Hall, Hall of Fame, Fame inducted the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section That's and it. the Crickets and yep. uh, Margie Pomeroy, who was Ian Wallace's Wife. widow, is. Yeah. Um, that's right. In- introduced us. And wow. So, yeah, that's when our, you know, story started. Yeah, it was way before I moved here. But we stayed in touch and eventually started collaborating on songs, yeah, too. Yeah, exactly. And about three or four years ago, you decided to cut the third album. Right. 2013, I, I guess we cut which it. Which I was fortunate to play a very small part in. You played a huge part in it because we got stuck at the end of the record and you're the one that saved our bacon you got online and figured out how to download whatever it was that allowed us to actually literally finish the record so it was <laughs> no small part that you played in that and i acknowledge that much on the on the uh, album sleeve so yeah and i remember you know it was really fun to be part of your creative process on deciding which songs to record yep. and so forth right and obviously you know fly very on, helpful fly on the wall in the studio too um good and got to spend more time with dan which was right since i you know love him mainly as an artist as an artist and writer yeah but get to see that side too and um but anyway what made you want to do a third album i had the songs you know and uh it's probably what will make me do a fourth album <laughs> i hope so yeah because we've written some good ones i'd love you know get together with dan and write some more and you know you and i can continue to write and you know i wrote three or four with spooner last time too so i, I think it's just a function of uh, you know as you get near something like that um you kind of I think when you get to be almost 74 years old, you realize time is uh, more and more valuable and you're, you're, you're running out of it, you know, so you want to leave behind as much as you can, as long as it's great, you know, it's good stuff. So, and we, you know, when we get together uh, between Dan, Jeff, they don't let things slide. You know, if, if they don't like it, then you do it over and over and over until you get it right. So, um, but fortunately, the people I've had playing on the tracks are so good that um, they don't have to do it over. I may have to do it over and over on my vocals, but they don't have to do it. So, uh, yeah, they're great have, musicians. Yeah, Mike Durham come back to play guitar. You had Steve Mackey on bass, yep. Kenny Malone on drums. Great. And Spooner and Bobby Ammons uh, playing yep. the keys. Yeah. Buzz Kaysen came in and sang a little bit. So did Dan. Yep. You had the Muscle Shoals horns on a few oh, tracks. It's Charles Rose and company, Steve Herman, uh, and Mr. Moffitt. Moffitt. Yeah. yeah. All great. All great. And, and uh, great feel, too. I mean, Charles Rose is a hell of an arranger. So, and a obviously a stellar player he's on the road with lyle lovett as we speak so down in hurricane territory i hope they make it out of there okay yeah and uh along the way some of those more recent song of yours were also recorded by our other artists uh chuck carbo did one of the songs chuck that you, carbo. And, you and dad i'd rather beg than steal yeah he did that 
that's how Dan helped me get a publishing company started on that song. So, and then Mitch Mann yeah, cut a song you and I wrote, ours, which was uh, and I I'm almost a, a little embarrassed to admit to admit this here in front of you, but I really tried to push him to, you know, get as as many original songs on it and me the producer kind of prevented me from pitching him my songs because I felt like that's yeah. a different hat you know of course but at the same time he knew I had this song and we performed it once together right. Right. with me singing and he's he's like we were in pre-production he's like, I want to cut this song of yours <laughs> and I, he's like I'm like well you know you got songs and I said no I want to cut this song so I have to give him credit for actually making it on the album and now whenever we do band shows with him we we close our set with the songs because people, cool. it's just a single it's people just love the good Yeah I love it. it I'd like to cut it too it's like it's uh it's a special song and there's some other things we've written I like to do too so Yeah absolutely um, Yeah and so anyway here we are Yep. And I'm pretty much uh, trying to cover whatever I felt was, you know, important mm -hmm. in the, the life of Charlie Taylor in and around music. Is there anything you feel we need to add to what we were able to talk about? I, you know, I really can't think of anything else. I just want to say our friendship means a lot to me. And uh, uh, it's going on probably eight or ten years at least. We met, uh, yeah, we met nine years ago this fall. Okay, so that's uh, and we're we're business partners in a in a sense too. So that's that just says everything. Yeah, with, with we got to, we got to release your music in Japan, which right? is fun too. Through Crazy Chester, which is even more fun, and yeah. Uh, so yeah, and you've you've helped me archive. Uh, songs and you know dug up stuff I'd totally forgotten about which I appreciate and uh, you know some legacy to leave my children and uh, so I just appreciate our friendship and and uh, means a, it means a lot to me I I don't have a lot of good friends but I certainly count you as one of my best friends well thank you and that yeah. is absolutely mutual and thank you very much for spending this you know, hour with me here. Thanks for here inviting at the studio. me. It was, it's been fun. So, uh, and I look forward to all our future endeavors. I look forward to it. Take right. care. You too. Thank Bye. you, Charlie. You bet. This was the 11th episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. We taped it at Buzz Kaysen's legendary Creative Workshop recording studio in the Berry Hill neighborhood of Nashville. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. See you next week. <laughs>